Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who've experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week, we are talking about post-traumatic growth. My name is Emily Mitchell. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. With me today, I have Helen Keeling Neal. Helen uses she, her pronouns and is a licensed mental health counselor and a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice in Winter Park, Florida. Helen is known for her ability to create safety for individuals, families, and couples so they can connect with and share the most vulnerable parts of themselves while being supported in an environment of respect and loving kindness. Helen uses an internal external systems approach to healing, believing change happens in relationship with self and others in a safe space. So Helen, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Emily. And I also have returning Brandy Godby. Brandy uses she, her pronouns and is the lead therapist at the VSC and is a licensed mental health counselor in the state of Florida. She is trained in EMDR and is a certified clinical trauma professional. Brandy has been advocating for sexual trauma survivors through VSC since 2012 and supports every person's right to peace and freedom in their lives. So Brandy, thank you as well for coming back onto the podcast. Thanks for having me again. Yes, (laughs) you come a lot and, and I always love having a conversation with you and I'm really excited about today's conversation. Just as a brief introduction, today we are joined by two amazing therapists and we'll be talking about hope and growth after trauma, myths surrounding the effects of trauma and the concept of feeling stuck, resiliency and strengths-based approaches in therapy and the ripple effects of healing. So with that, I'd like to dive right into the topic here. I think it might be a little helpful to first define what PTSD is. So what is it and what are some of its symptoms? Yeah, I'll, I'll go for that. So post-traumatic stress disorder is what PTSD stands for. And that is clinical terminology um, that's in the DSM. For those that don't know, the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. We are on the fifth edition. Um, PTSD wasn't added, I don't think until like the third edition, 1980, I believe is what I read. So the world of trauma, you know, 
relatively speaking, is new-ish, and the information we have about, you know, trauma responses is growing and changing. I'm adding all this as caveats because what I'm about to define is very clinical. Um, and so according to the DSM, PTSD is represented by symptoms that are across several categories. Um, those categories include re-experiencing symptoms, avoidance symptoms, arousal and reactivity symptoms, and then cognition and mood symptoms. And folks have to have those symptoms um, across all of those categories in various numbers, one or two as minimum, depending on the category, and those symptoms all have to be present for at least one month um, ongoing. There is a difference um, between PTSD and acute stress disorder. Acute stress disorder is what happens like three days to 30 days after experiencing a traumatic event. Um, just before we started recording, I know we were talking about, oh, three days. And I think that's a really important thing to point out because trauma responses are normal and natural. So everybody's going to have a response after an event. Um, so I have no idea if that was the rationale behind that three-day window for acute stress disorder or not, but it makes sense to me. Um, so people can have those responses. It's all normal. People can have those responses ongoing, you know, and it's, you know, 33 days past. That's acute stress disorder. But if the symptoms continue to show up for people, again, across all of those categories, um, then we might be looking at PTSD. Thank you, Brandy. I think that that was super helpful. And yeah, thank you for also defining what the DSM is, because I forget to bring that up in my podcast where essentially it's kind of used, um, you know, therapists use it in order to diagnose individuals and they have to meet certain criteria. Is that correct? Or am I kind of making a no, bad? I mean, it's okay, correct. It's Right, it's actually developed by the American Psychiatric Association. So it's used across a number of mental health disciplines. Um, and also note that not all therapists um, are pro-diagnostic just because it really can, um, I, I don't know, it, it's over-diagnostic. Yeah, it pathologizes mm -hmm. a lot of, of things that folks have going on um, that some of us think maybe isn't necessary. I don't know if right, right. Because this will be an appropriate normalized brain response when we focus on the pathology of it as a mental illness and it takes it out of what the brain is normally doing in response to this situation. So a lot of therapists tend to stay away from diagnosing unless it's beneficial or helpful for the client. Yeah, and to that point, um, I was when I was looking at the history of this, the category that PTSD and acute um, stress disorder are under is actually a relatively new category within the DSM, and that's trauma and stressor-related disorders. Historically, PTSD was introduced under anxiety-related disorders. Um, so it really does reflect a lot of the research and understanding um, we're developing around treating trauma and understanding trauma. Thank you. Yeah, I think that that is a really important point that it's in its own little, it's in a different category than I even realized. Um, and I don't know if you have anything you want to jump in on that with about the definition, Helen. Yeah, yeah I was just thinking about though. So this is the definition we have. This is old now. This can would be considered old. We have so much more information, so much more information about how the brain reacts. And I was thinking 
the next iteration of the DSM that comes out is probably we're going to see more of a focus on trauma. Trauma in general as a source and a root of so many other of the categories that we already have in the DSM. I don't know what you think, Brandy, but I think that's where we're moving towards. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, this was published in 2013, which was mm -hmm. like my last year in grad school. So that was a fun time to like learn one way and then let's learn another. Um, but that, I mean, 2013 is 2021. And you think about how much we advance our knowledge and research and practices. Um, so I think it would be nice to see a little bit more inclusive view, mm -hmm. um, not just from experiencing, but also cultural considerations, because mm -hmm. the PTSD diagnosis is written from a very Western perspective and doesn't always take into account other cultural considerations. And that's mm -hmm. just a fact. That reminds us, reminds me of the podcast we had, Brandy, where we talked about anti-racism and therapy. We talked a little bit about the DSM and, and the implications of how it's missing kind of multicultural pieces to it, which is super important. Um, we've been talking, okay, so you brought up trauma and how, you know, probably the next DSM will dive more into it. So let's define what trauma really is. So what is trauma um, and how does it relate to PS? PTSD, does it always follow a period of trauma? Well, you know, that's, a that's kind of a broad category in there because what might be trauma for me might not be a traumatic experience for you or for Brandy. So what might be a traumatic event for a client may not be a traumatic event for another client, but we do know that it's an overwhelming of the system, the brain system. So it's a response where someone may feel, um, incapable or overwhelmed or out of control in a situation to change the circumstances. I don't know if that fits for you, Brandy, as a, as a sort of overall description of a traumatic event. So it could be something as like a five-year-old being folded up in a couch and experiencing that as trauma all the way to the other end of the spectrum of murder, viewing of a murder or really traumatic sexual trauma or um, all of that is trauma not, and everything in between being yelled at screamed at in the face um, anything that feels overwhelming to the system yeah i agree i mean i kind of just say it's something that happens that's beyond our capacity of understanding mm -hmm. and we can't make sense of it and so that's that's where that's where our work winds up leading often. I don't know if you agree, Helen, but you know, getting to the root of okay, this overwhelmed the system. So what was the irrational belief that formed? What are the yes. things around? Um, and I like that you use that example of the five-year-old in the sofa because some five-year-olds might hop out and be like, "Oh my gosh, that was so fun! Let's do it again!" Yes. You know, like, "Yay, let's play around on this thing." So it is very individual, and there yeah. are a number of factors involved in determining what a trauma response might be. That includes, you know, and this I think is super important in our work at VSC, but it does include other lived experiences that mm -hmm. include like racial trauma or trauma for populations that have yes. been oppressed. I mean, those there are a lot of factors that go on and mm -hmm. research is starting to dig into a little bit more understanding around genetic components of right. trauma responses and resilience responses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for the epigenetic legacy. We're looking at a lot of that and how that's stored and is ready to be activated by a trauma in the person's current life. All these things really play a factor into it. 
You said epigenetics. And from my understanding, it's this idea that we have predisposed um, certain things for like disorders, for example. So like maybe we're predisposed to an anxiety disorder, but we need something in our environment to bring that out. Is that correct? Sort of. Yes. We might have, I think a great example would be, there's a documentary that we, we had talked about before, Gabo Mate's documentary, um, The Wisdom of Trauma. And in one of the scenes in this documentary, there's a circle going on at a prison and it's a male prison. And they're doing an activity where they step forward if they've experienced this or if they experienced that, like the absence of a father in the home is experienced as trauma for many, many children. That's a traumatic event, a traumatic loss. And there was one point when one of the gentlemen started talking about his recollection of an awareness of when his mom would go and get a switch to beat him, it mimicked what would happen in slavery. And this was a black male. And so he was identifying this systemic piece that gets embedded genetically, the trauma experiences of generation after generation after generation after generation lives in our bodies today. And then something may happen, some specific event that is a potential traumatic event. And because that information is stored, you might have a reaction that is um, more along the lines of PTSD than someone who maybe does not have an epigenetic legacy. Does that sound accurate, Brandon, to you? Sort of? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a geneticist by any stretch of the imagination, um, but <laughs> based on the things that I've seen and read, which is very, very surface, I mean, yeah, mm -hmm. we're understanding more and more about those components. I wonder if as research continues, they'll identify other markers that predispose mm -hmm. someone to having a trauma response and or, because I don't want to, this whole podcast is about, you know, leading towards growth, right? Mm -hmm. And or resilience responses. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well put. And we do know it's biopsychosocial. We all do a biopsychosocial to look at the biology, look at the psychology of the family and the social environment because it's so impactful. Absolutely. I appreciate you kind of breaking down those two definitions there. And you talked about, you know, being predisposed to maybe you know, reacting to trauma in a certain way. So we defined post-traumatic stress disorder. So will PTSD always follow a period of trauma? Is it always kind of how someone will react to it? No. Because <laughs> people may not experience PTSD. They might have a traumatic response and then resolve that and not have any lingering effects from a tra traumatic event. So we um, have sort of grown into a culture that uses PTSD instead of trauma response. Here, here. Um, also, no, you know, definitely PTSD is not, it's not transactional. Like I experienced a traumatic something now I have PTSD. And I think that oversimplifies things. And honestly, it's part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast is because I feel like so much, um, you know, general conversation has increased around trauma and trauma responses, but I don't think it goes deep enough or 
long enough to really talk about what I think is important. And the other thing, Helen, you talked about how, um, you know, people label things as PTSD. I think in general, we are such a hyperbolic society. Holy smokes, we exaggerate everything that happens in our lives. And, you know, it would be interesting if someone wanted to do a study on the impact of, you know, social media and, you know, immediate access to everybody's details of their lives and the meaning behind that, regardless, it's something we do. We exaggerate. Literally, that was me exaggerating all of the time, <laughs> you know, and, and that happens a lot of times with, with mental health diagnoses, um, including PTSD. People, oh gosh, so many people are like, I have PTSD from going to the store because that one time, and it's like, no, you don't. And you're actually minimizing it for the folks who really do experience mm -hmm. what's According to the criteria, it's a very debilitating cluster of symptoms across these several areas. It is a serious thing that impacts people's lives. And no, absolutely, you don't have it because you went to the store and somebody, you know, wasn't wearing a mask again. You know what I mean? Like there are certain things that people exaggerate to over explain just a, co a common discomfort, in my opinion, and I'm not talking about clients, but I'm talking about general public conversation, people misuse right. these things. Yes, this is, seems to be a move towards people really wanting to have an identity to a label, so that it can explain the way that they're feeling. And therefore that legitimizes the way that they're feeling whereas their feelings are legit, legitimate anyway, and don't need to have that pathology identifier to make them legitimate. And so often people who have not been heard or had their feelings validated can use a diagnosis like that to be heard because they're saying, I hurt, I'm feeling out of mm -hmm. control or this is going on with me. Let me give it some legitimacy so I will be heard when it's not necessarily PTSD. I feel like you said so much there, Helen. I think that that is such a powerful point where, yeah, it's this idea of like, there's so much shame when it comes to certain feelings of whatever grief, um, you know, trauma responses, but also feelings of like being stuck or feelings of depression or things like that, that if they're not feeling heard, they may like you said, which I, I just can't put it more beautifully than you did, which is, you know, leaning onto a diagnosis or a label um, as an identity to legitimize that. I think that that is definitely important. I wanted to uplift that. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Brandy. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm sitting here nodding my head for those of you listening, <laughs> you know, because I, I agree. I think it really illustrates um, not only some of the struggles for folks who experience trauma, but just in general, what I see is uh, part of the problem with the way we connect with folks. People don't yeah. really pause and listen. We're distracted. We're multitasking. And a lot of that is because of, you know, pressures to be productive in a capitalist society. But that's another podcast. <laughs> you know, we, yeah. we don't just listen to each other. And so when you've got someone who is, who's experienced a trauma and is really seeking that connection after, which by the way, responses after a trauma can influence whether or not someone experiences yes. clinical symptoms for things like PTSD. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not necessarily what happened to them. It's the stuff after too. So if someone's not hearing them and someone's saying, get over it and someone's saying, you know, okay, I know it, it was terrible, but you know, 
aren't you ready to move on? Can't you just pick up with your life and blah, blah, blah. You know, when people aren't heard, that can become traumatic. Um, so I think that was a great point that, you know, feeling unheard, um, it, it's really a big part of what people in my therapy space, I don't know about you, Helen, come to work on and heal. There's that relational yeah. component and the connection and shame and all of that. Um, but how sad if we have to shout out and clinically diagnose our own symptoms from some BuzzFeed quiz or otherwise, just to feel like what we've been through matters. Right. Yeah, that's well put. I want to speak to something you just said too there, Brandy, because I think this is really important, especially when we're talking about the PTSD diagnosis is sometimes the trauma is not the traumatic event, but it's what happens after or even sometimes before the traumatic event. So I had a client who um, uh, disclosed as a, a 19 year old disclosed a rape at age 11, but the event that was more traumatic for her was when the police officer came and was saying, are you sure you didn't know him before? Are you sure he wasn't your boyfriend in the neighborhood? And this was an adult man in his twenties that raped this child. And so that was the source of the trauma that we needed to work on versus the actual rape to start with. We were later able to go and process the rape, but we had to start there because that was so much more traumatic for her to be not believed. And this was uh, a child of color with a white police officer at the time. So there was a whole systemic piece that went along with it right there that was even deeper for this client. Wow, that's really a powerful story there, Helen. I think that it just goes to show the complicated. I love that you bring up all the different pieces to it that contribute to it, including the race and the power dynamic there too. But also it just kind of, I talk a lot about on the podcast about how to be a good supporter. And I think that this is just telling how important and vital supporters are for survivors in their lives. You could be the first person that they're disclosing to and the way that you react obviously can have lasting effects either way, right? It can be a healing yeah. effect or as you mentioned, um, the other way as well. Um, with that being said, as I mentioned in the introduction, just shifting gears a little bit, we'll be talking about growth after trauma. But before we dive into that, I'd like to talk a little bit about feelings of being stuck after trauma. What have you seen in clients when it comes to these feelings? Yeah, that's a really good question. It, sometimes if somebody's been walking through life and, and been you know, struggling with trauma and sometimes even might end up in my office nine therapists later with multiple diagnoses and I'll sit with this client and we'll recognize and look at the extent of the actual trauma that they've gone through. And they suddenly get that identity piece of, oh, I'm not crazy. I'm experiencing the results of these traumatic events that I've been through. And one of the things that I've seen that can keep someone stuck a little bit is ascribing to the identity of that. 
If I am the client, I'm Helen. I'm Helen and I have experienced this trauma. I am not Helen the trauma. So we have to sort of help a client step back and see the trauma not as them, but something that they have experienced. It, it does not. It doesn't define them. It is something that they have experienced. But there does tend to be, especially for someone who's been searching for solutions and not knowing and maybe not had trauma-informed care, a period where that identity can feel like a relief, but then can also become a way to stay sometimes a little bit in a little bit of a victim situations sometimes not always and and i don't in any want any way want to you know i want to say that very tenderly and with great respect for people who've gone through very difficult and painful things but sometimes it is easier to stay feeling that versus claiming back some of the rage and claiming back some of the uh, releasing and processing some of the more difficult feelings so it can be stuck that way and also, too, I see a lot of times that attachment, if there are early attachment issues, adoption, fostering, absence, loss, difficult things, neglect, food insecurity, there tends to be an attachment to the identity piece of a trauma survivor versus a post-trauma thriver. Yeah, I really agree. There are a lot of factors influence someone feeling quote unquote stuck in some of these things, um, including, you know, whether or not they've been heard, whether or not they've been appropriately um, worked with, worked alongside. And there's, you know, there's some reality to these stages. When we look at traumatic experiencing and then growth, there are stages where it's like emergency crisis, you know, holy smokes, I can't manage anything. I'm freaking out. I'm angry. The world's insane. All that stuff is pretty normal. We move to other stages. Sometimes that includes numbing, shutting down. I don't feel anything because this is beyond my capacity to manage and handle. Um, and I think sometimes clients can get stuck in that because it works. I'm using air quotes on a podcast. Again, this is probably like every time I've been on this podcast, I use air quotes, but it works air quotes until it doesn't. Right. Um, and so some folks stay stuck because what historically has helped create like a, a disconnect from what the really painful stuff is. That's terrifying to think about bridging that gap. And some folks are like, no, mm, 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 nope, I'm, I'm really numb. I can't talk about what happened, but help me feel better. <laughs> okay. We'll start where we are because that's another thing, you know, people sometimes need um, a little bit of expansion in their coping and their window of tolerance to be able to lean in and lean in. I use this yoga analogy, even though I'm not like a yoga teacher or anything like that, but it just sticks with me when they talk about find your edge. So it's like, find your edge and lean into it, find your edge and lean into it. And that feels really scary because by the nature of going to your edge, you're going to lean out of that comfort zone a little bit, but we're not going so far that we've like snapped, you know, and fallen over and everything is, um, really like emergency zone. But in order to become unstuck, we have to lean in a little bit and lean in a little bit. Um, so I think, you know, feeling stuck is pretty normal. And I think that when clients are sick of being stuck is usually when we see them because the things that quote unquote worked either doesn't match with their values or how they see themselves growing into their lives and, or is 
really harming some of their relationships with others, with themselves, with just the way they experience the world. Great. Yeah, I appreciate you both kind of sharing some experiences that you've had um, with clients. I think that that's really eye-opening too. And, and um, as always, I think that, you know, I appreciate you also kind of bringing up how things that worked in that time. So everyone's reaction is completely normal, right? And mm -hmm. it's what was working for them. And then for those who want to kind of move forward, whatever that looks like to them, and they're able to do so in a safe space with a therapist or a counselor. Um, yeah, lean into it. Like you said, Brandy, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about some common misconceptions when it comes to responding to trauma. So what are some that kind of come up for you? I think we've touched on a couple of them that a traumatic event doesn't necessarily lead to PTSD. One of the other big ones is that PTSD is a life sentence and you'll never be free of it. You'll never be able to heal from it. And that's, that's just not true that we do have therapeutic interventions, which can free you completely completely up from a trauma reaction based on the trauma history that you've had. Yeah, and I think it would be important to kind of highlight a little bit of those specific symptoms of PTSD. There are some examples. So what's kind of like some examples of some um, symptoms of PTSD? And then how do you work through, um, you said it's not a life sentence. So what if someone later on has a similar symptom to it? but maybe they're like, oh, does that mean that I didn't actually heal from the trauma? Well, that's a really good question. And, and the answer to that is no. You know, there are gonna be times where we're under stress. And right now, for example, we're under chronic stress. We're under chronic stress. Uh, we've been under chronic stress politically, socially, with what's been evolving. And then of course, with the pandemic. So, um, there are some clients that I have who have been working on healing from their trauma and have a PTSD diagnosis who do very well in this situation because they're used to it. They're used to being under chronic stress, right? And so, and then there are others who are getting activated because they're under chronic stress and it's activating unresolved um, issues that have yet, not yet to be dealt with. And that's usually what I tend to see. It's less activating something that's already been resolved. If it's been resolved using the MDR, any of the kind of interventions we have available right now, it tends to be resolved. But maybe there's a separate, different new event coming up that is being activated that needs to be worked on. So I tend to see a resolution, a specific resolution, but maybe there's something more that's come up. I think that's a great point, Helen, and I see similarities with, you know, other things. Like I have clients who sometimes get a little freaked out if they had an anger outburst and, oh my gosh, maybe this is like me that I don't, and it's like, no, no, you can't undo the work that you've done. And it's unrealistic to expect that, you know, once you get your therapy diploma that you've completed <laughs> your healing journey, yeah. you know, it, we don't get immunity from life. We don't get immunity from difficulties. There's no basket of puppies and rainbows at the end. And unicorns. Yeah. Nope. I haven't <laughs> seen it. And if there's yeah. one out there, I never got mine. And I want to talk with the person in charge. Um, All right. We still experience. 
we still experience things, you know, we're still going to experience moments where we lose our cool or whatever happens. And it doesn't mean, you know, doing this work and healing from trauma doesn't mean that you're never distressed about what happened again. It's normal to say that was really messed up because it was, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like, okay, well, I, I, I don't have any feelings about it anymore. Some people get to a place of detachment, um, but some people can still detach from, you know, being immersed in thoughts and feelings that are overwhelming, say that that was really messed up and that's normal. And I still get pissed off when I hear about similar things. Cool. You're a human who have a response. Doing the work doesn't mean that we've erased your memory or experience, or you no longer have an opinion on this kind of issue. Yeah, I totally agree with that. We have to normalize the human condition, humanity, feelings, um, emotional agility is a goal. It's not to be Spock. And for any of the younger viewers, Spock was on the first original Star Trek and he was Vulcan and everything was logical or illogical. Now, we may have all craved that. I personally have craved to be Spock. As a child, I would love to have been Spock. You know, he was my idol. But that's not the reality of who we are as human yeah. beings. And it's the ability to be able to manage any affect that comes up and roll with it and yeah. roll with it without shaming ourselves for having it, like you said. Yeah. And in addition to not being Spock, it's also not, I'm going to use a dated reference to, it's not being Cheer Bear, who is my favorite Care Bear. She has like our little rainbow on her tummy. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, I loved her. Yes. We, we aren't always cheerful either. We're still going to experience, you know, I prescribe inside out to so many clients like watch this, you know, because there's a function to all these other emotions. So no Spock, no cheer bear. Sorry, y'all pure human. I appreciate you bringing up these really great examples. For example, the uh, inside out, you're right, Brandy. There's a scene where for, throughout the movie, you're like kind of, you know, siding with happiness. And then you're kind of seeing like, well, what is the point of sadness? And then there's this moment where sadness definitely is this integral part for this moment of empathy that the main character has with someone else. And I love that because, yeah, there's there's functions to all these emotions and normalizing humanity, like you mentioned, Helen, is such a great way of putting it, too. Um so we, I'd like to now lean into exactly what post-traumatic growth is, which is the title of this podcast. So what do we mean when we reference post-traumatic growth and what does it look like? Well, I think there's what Brandy and I might mean. And then there's some of <laughs> what other people might mean. And I pulled out the post-traumatic growth inventory again. Um, According to the post-traumatic growth inventory, it is post-traumatic growth is seated in five areas relating to others, new possibilities, personal strength, spiritual change, appreciation of life. And so they have a, a, an inventory that scores you from zero to five on where you are in those categories. And the higher your score, the most the more post-traumatic growth you have. So that's a very basic example of it. I think this is not a very multicultural inventory and I think it's very basic and you know, I have clients who would not want to be scored on where they are spiritually because they have different belief systems from that. So even that, having that in it is interesting. 
So my definition of post-traumatic growth is anything that has moved someone out of a behavior and affect that was formally connected to the trauma. And that could be as simple as someone going from not being able to sleep through the night, being able to sleep through the night. Not being able to go into an elevator, being able to go in, into an elevator. Yeah. So many things we could use as examples there. I love the individuality of it. And I love that you're able to pinpoint these exact kind of, in my opinion, would be kind of like a win, right? Like we, yeah. we kind of had a win and let's celebrate it and that kind of thing. Um, and I also appreciate that you uh, acknowledge that it might not be multicultural and the spirituality piece to it too. I was going to say that as well. I think that that might be hard for some people to relate to. And for others, that's like a really important part of their journey too. Brandy, right. I assume that you have something that you want to jump in on as well, as far as the definition. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I've seen the same, you know, five categories and you know, late die there. Um, but I, I think it, Helen's right. It's really individual and we can't undermine the wins along the way. So mm -hmm. anything that is helping someone feel like they're moving and healing and growing beyond that is part of their post-traumatic growth because mm -hmm. by the literal definition, that's what's happening, right? Um, I love to see the flourishing side of it. I do because my my theoretical orientation is existentialism. What a party that is. Um, but that's where I really, really do love to dig in and help clients determine how, you know, what they've been through has informed their life and their experience of life. Um, and, and yes, some of those cliched ways, but I, I, I mean, I support folks in defining how they want to move forward in their lives. And to me, that's what it's all about that. I mean, I think it even says it in my bio on BSC, like all about helping people find peace and freedom in their lives, period. That is post-traumatic growth. Can you feel peace and freedom in your lives? Now, obviously I'm not including a lot of the social injustice and need for change across a, far too many areas based on Oh, far too much history and current events. Um, but I think when people start to feel that shift and unburdening from being kind of weighed down, stuck, it's like feeling like cement, you know, or just feeling absolutely weight of the world on the shoulders or on the chest or wherever people are feeling it. And the word lighter is used a lot with clients over time in therapy. You notice, I feel lighter. I feel lighter. No, 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 no. It does not mean like I've been seeing you and I didn't feel lighter this session because again, this is life. This isn't basket of, of unicorn and, you know, ice cream cones party. Um, but I think people get to determine what that is as they start to feel that unburdening cool. What do you know about yourself? A lot of people experience enhanced insight and understanding of who they are, their value system, how they want to interact with others, how they want to be in the world, um, what it means for them. And there are people who take swerves in areas of like, I've decided I'm going to move here. I'm going to do this focus for my career. I'm doing such and such with my family now. We've revised. I mean, there are major revisions that happen in people's yeah. lives, not just with themselves, but with the way they interact with others and the world around yeah. them. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of clients will go back to school and start back on the journey that they wanted before they internalize that belief system of a, I'm, I'm not good enough. So when we start to resolve the, the maladaptive belief systems that are connected with the traumatic events and, and they assimilate and install the new belief systems of, yeah, I can, 
choose to do anything I want in my life. It, it's sort of a shift of power where the power has been with the trauma and then the power and the agency is shifting to and the locus of control is within the client and then they begin to externalize it in their lives and, and leave a relationship or start a relationship, like leave an unhealthy relationship or, or, or start dating, you know, just so many things. So it's on a spectrum and it's an individual and personal spectrum and having the client identify their own growth and own successes is, is really key because what might not be growth for me might be growth for someone else and vice versa. I love that. And I love this. Um, you brought up power. Absolutely. While you both were talking, it's, um, and you meant reference freedom as well, but also like this idea of choosing what growth looks like for them and them able mm-hmm. to decide that for themselves. Because as you know, as I've said so many times on this podcast, sexual violence is a crime of power and control where power is taken away from the client and, and the survivor. And therefore- I- have, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Helen. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Okay. So that, you know, I was just suddenly very excited because I was thinking about Simone Biles. And, and this was just such a perfect time because I was thinking about how much power and control she would have been under in the role that she was in representing a country. And yet what she did, which is I think just this stellar example of post-traumatic growth is retain herself, not abandon herself, take herself out of a potentially dangerous recreation of, of um, getting injured and, and to do it in a way where she was just mindful and caring for her teammates, but for herself. She never abandoned herself in that situation on a world stage for in front of millions of people who would possibly condemn her for letting down a country. The message is abandon your health and well-being for this country or, you know, the the abuser in the past, the history of abuse. And she didn't do that. And it's just such, she's such a great example of post-traumatic growth. Yeah. What a model of someone who is basically going against a system that says your body is not your own. And her standing up and saying, my body is my own and I have a right to practice self-care and I don't owe the country anything. Yeah. Brilliant. Brandy, you had a reaction. Yeah. Because I think, you know, I, I agree. It is, it is brilliant. Um, it doesn't sound as cool when I say it because I don't have the same <laughs> accent, <laughs> but it's brilliant. Um, I don't have an accent, Brandy. You have an accent. Oh, I'm sorry. Right, right. I forgot the context. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but, you know, for her becoming the expert in her life, for, for anyone becoming the expert in their life, like I tell my clients all the time, you know, I don't have the answers, you're the expert in your life. I'm the expert in mine, you know, Helen's the expert in hers, Simone's the expert in hers, you know? Mm-hmm. So that is part of trauma growth, I think, post-traumatic growth is understanding that you do have the answers within you. They have always been there, just often have been blocked, cemented, cut off, buried, layered, whatever, by the experiences, the trauma responses, which were totally normal and helpful at the time and needed and sometimes out of out of control, out of our own control. We don't choose like, okay, so I think I'll dissociate or maybe I'll fight. I'm not sure. Let me choose. No. You know, so it's always there because I, you know, earlier when you were talking about, um, you know, moving 
into post-traumatic growth, I was thinking of the clients because I do hear a lot of clients say, well, I never had a life free of trauma. And that is true for some folks. Some people do come into the world and just immediately are in unhealthy relational dynamics, unhealthy environments in terms of lack of, you know, nurturing or, you know, physical support, whether that's shelter, food, whatever it is. I still believe deeply in the human capacity for healing, which includes knowing oneself. And I think through that healing and growth process is when sometimes for the first time, it's kind of like shaking hands with your, you know, internal cheer bear or whoever it is in there and being like, oh my gosh, you were in there. I'm not actually this jaded, you know, like aggro angry. I will effing kick everybody's butts all over this playground and now I don't make friends at work and I hate it you know oh my god I have a little rainbow in my heart Mm -hmm. there she is I love her hi nice to meet you how can we nurture this so I think it's important to point out even for folks who feel like they've never experienced a trauma-free life I believe that very much like with total conviction it is still in you and it's still possible to meet welcome and nurture that person that's beautiful. I love that, Brandy. I love that. Yeah. And, and that's that piece when they don't have to be in protection and fight anymore and they can let down and, and become vulnerable and access more vulnerable and more relaxed and happy parts of themselves. I love that the way you presented it. Thanks. And I think that's where the growth stuff comes in, right? Where it's like, now that I'm facilitating this understanding and relationship with myself, oh my gosh, like, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for how I want to walk out my present days? Because now I really am in my present days, you know, my present current orientation. And, and I love everything that you're both are saying. And, and how can a therapist kind of facilitate this happening for someone um, it, what does it look like? Is it like validating emotions, things like that? Um, wh- how can a therapist kind of help someone who's definitely in charge of this healing journey, but how can they help facilitate it? Well, I think that piece that, that Brandy said is so good and so true is the client is their own best expert. They really are. And that our journey is not to pull them somewhere or push them somewhere. It's to walk next to them and in pace with them and and shine a light help shine a light to look at things and support when releasing that darkness and one of the things that i think is really important is to set up post-traumatic growth right at the beginning so doing strength-based acknowledgement solution focused moments not that in a way that invalidates a client and deep pain and the darkness that they've been through, but highlights the fact that, wow, you've been thinking about coming to therapy for five years and you made it. That's really super courageous. That that is impressive. What's it like to actually know that you did it? You got here. Well, I didn't think I was going to make it, but I'm here and here I am. And, And just really that's amazing. It is for somebody who is in intense pain or, or feeling overwhelmed by trauma to be able to come to therapy and say, I need help. I want help. I am super anxious because I don't know you and I'm reaching out to a complete stranger for help to guide me and support me through this. That's brilliant. Right there. That's kind of a little seed of post-traumatic growth right away. So it's our job to set up that acknowledgement 
what you went through was awful. And I'm sitting here in just respect and amazement that you're alive today. And I just want to acknowledge that for you. Those kinds of things, because that's the truth of it. Our clients are amazing. They are because they are really there because they want to heal and grow and move on and thrive in their lives. And I just have such respect for that. I love that. I, I remember uh, another therapist of ours have been, has been on this podcast and we were talking with a survivor on that particular episode. I think it was the first one. And he said something, she, she kept thinking like, thank you so much advocates. Like you really are doing so such incredible work. And I remember he immediately turned it back and said, y'all are doing the work. The, the survivors are doing the work. So I, I heard that while you were talking, Helen. With that being said, you, you mentioned something earlier too, where we were talking about transforming what's wrong with you to what happened to you, kind of separating the, the trauma from, the, from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. But will we were, while we were uh, planning this podcast, Helen, you introduced something called, how does it affect you? So can you explain mm-hmm. this a little bit? Yeah, sure. I'm going to pull out my chart for those of you who are listening. So this is a chart that I use and I've actually had clients that they laugh at me. Oh, you're pulling out the chart again, are you? Yes. Yes, I am. And it's by Janina Fisher, PhD, and she's fantastic. It's psychoeducational aids for working with psychological trauma because physical abuse, sexual abuse, whatever the trauma is, the results are psychological trauma. It's developmental trauma right, in the brain. And so what she talked about on the first page, she has this wonderful chart with trauma, but it talks about trauma survivors have symptoms instead of memories. So we live it in our bodies. So that it might be hypervigilance, mistrust, generalized anxiety, chronic pain, headaches, substance use disorders, eating disorders, derealization, depersonalization, uh, self-harm, suicidality, loss of identity, depression, nightmares, shame, worthlessness, flashbacks. That's, that's what we're working with in our clients. So this is such a great chart because I'll go through it with the clients and identify what, what they have as a result of their trauma. So we're not dealing with the memory, we're dealing with the symptoms as a result. So you say not dealing with the memory. So what would dealing with the memory look like? Just so I can kind of conceptualize that a little bit. So you're not like working with the trauma itself, but you're working with the symptoms of the trauma. Is that what you mean? Yes. So the, well, I think is, let me think about how to present this. I think it's both, right? But it's the way or the avenue we conceptualize trauma. If we conceptualize trauma uh, as I was in a major car crash. Okay, let's talk about that car crash versus I'm afraid to drive now. And every time I get to stop time, I have an anxiety attack. So we're talking about the emotional effects, the psychological effects of that traumatic event. Now, I would go in and I would use EMDR to resolve that. That negative cognition is probably I am not safe. Right. And then I would work the client on a positive cognition. Um, I'm safe now might be 
their cognition. It could be as simple as that and, and museum DR to resolve that. But we have to look at it as a holistic thing where it's not just the event, it's the effects of the event and it's how the information was stored at that time. And you earlier said that it can also be the effects of past events too. And yes. then how compounded, yeah, reacted to you yes. sharing about the event too. So all of those things have to be unpacked, it sounds like. Um, yeah. And with EMDR, a lot of times you'll see you might resolve something earlier in the day and then resolve something afterwards. You might even start after the memory um, in a hospital, you know, after this event and maybe in the hospital and start there and back way up to the memory and then before the memory, the actual event of the actual physical component. Yeah, I think that that's all super important. Um, Brandy, did you have something you wanted to jump in on that? No, I was just thinking like, you know, I agree. And I think it's what really is being highlighted is that it, what we're saying it is individual. Um, so some folks will come in primarily concerned about the symptoms, like how the trauma has affected them, like what's happening now. And some folks will come in primarily impacted by a stuck memory or re-experiencing of something. And, and then any combination of those two things and others, but really this is why individual you know, individualized approaches and individualized treatments are so important and getting to know our clients and meeting them where they are is so important. Um, it's also why, you know, I know this wasn't exactly one of the myths, but I love to dispel the myth and notion that it's necessary to tell your whole story in detail from start to finish. It is just so not true. I think that used to be a school of thought and I can remember watching some dated cringe videos like um oh about like community crisis response and they're like tell us what happened here's what you're going to do and I'm like, ah, 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 no, person. No, no. like first of all no and then second of all no she gets to decide everyone's stop but I don't need to hear everything that happened and if it's important for you to have someone hold that space I'm capable of doing so but that's not our treatment goal we're not trying to get you to remember everything and, and say it all out loud because that isn't the key to you feeling better about proverbially getting behind the wheel of this car in Helen's example that, that mm -hmm. you know maybe mm -hmm. it's important and maybe that's part of it but that's not the way or the only way because like Helen was describing especially in EMDR and I see this with clients and it can come as a surprise a client might come in with a history of sexual trauma and we might actually uncover that the root of an irrational belief about themselves has nothing to do with the sexual trauma yes yeah, nothing to do with it. So the thing that on, you know, paper or whatever we want to say verbally, that is the most horrific sounding or grotesque or whatever it is, may not be the origin of where this stuff started. And that happens for probably more people than folks realize. I don't know. You're, you're nodding. Yes. Oh, my gosh. That's right on Brandy. Right on all the time that happens. So we'll have the event that we're dealing with. But that that belief system, that negative belief system was installed way before that, a lot, a lot of time. That makes a lot of sense. And again, it's kind of going into how complicated this can be, um, which I totally, yeah, I just want to like take a moment and thank you both for choosing this work and helping survivors find that. I just think that um, I'm seeing how I, I, you know, I just feel like on this podcast, it's just kind of showing people who are helping those who heal and, and things like that are so vital. 
um, because we all kind of go through things and we all kind of need that support and that space to grow. Um, I, in a happy bed doing a little dance. <laughs> I, I love your support. I love being validated. That is one of the pros of going into this field is like, we really need that, but we're also capable of, of providing it. Thank you, Emily, for um, offering that. I also want to, I just, because I was thinking as well, and I think this is a difference between kind of like, you know, at least at our agency, like the counseling versus therapy. It's like, do you want to work with, do you want to develop skills to mitigate and manage your symptoms? Are you ready to go deep and real and let's transform some of these beliefs and let's, I mean, potentially even alter your outlook on life. Mm -hmm. And for some people that's too much and it's not the right time and that is okay. And it may never be the right time. They are cool functioning where they are. They just need help figuring out how to sleep again and, you know, how to be able to manage anger reactions or whatever it is. But I think that is a little bit of a difference in how some people do the work. I see these things. Oh my gosh, y'all. When I was researching, it's like the average number of sessions for PTSD is six to 12 sessions. And I was like, for who? Oh my God. <laughs> not not Okay. Okay. That's really cool. And I applaud those of you who have been able to do that deep transformative healing in 12 sessions, but wowza. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, this is why, you know, at VSC, I'm so grateful that we are able to offer really kind of like a long-term approach to supporting people's mm-hmm. healing and do it in a variety of ways, you know, individual and group and um, learning skills with our fabulous advocates and crisis counselors, then going for a deep dive with our amazing, you know, therapists um, but it, it really depends, I think, on where the person is at that time and what they want to do. And there is a difference, at least mm-hmm. in my experience. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah, I appreciate you making that distinction, Brandy. And um, yeah, I love, again, VSC is all about like providing that individualized services and care. And that's really what we mean by that. Um, I wrote down something earlier while we were talking about like kind of like the idea of, you know, there's like a spectrum Um, but also like the fluidity of healing that you may be, you know, in this moment, this is what path you want to go down. And then, cause you said earlier, kind of like swerving into like, I'm going to go back to school or something like that. And that can be kind of ready for that moment. And Mm -hmm. then maybe later on, they're ready for that deep dive that you were talking about too. So um, yeah, I just want to uplift that and acknowledge that you know, part of therapy also involves, and I don't know if there's a better term for this now, but when I was in school, uh, we use the word termination, which is when the therapeutic relationship ends between the therapist and the client. So do you find this to be a particularly difficult time for a client, especially those who have gone through trauma? Hmm. I think that depends on the client. And and it depends on what kind of attachment styles and possible attachment wounds. A lot of times you see attachment wounds make it difficult for a client to move on um, to, to even where they might, um, like I said before, be resistant to post-traumatic growth because it feels like a fractured attachment is coming. And that just means that there needs to be some more attachment work and some more healing there. But it's actually pretty glorious when you have a client who is ready, doesn't really want to leave, but knows that they're ready. 
knows that they are now their own best expert. They are their own advocate. They have this whole ninja ability of boundaries that they can use to keep themselves safe and healthy and, and are just launching into life without the weight of the trauma they've resolved. And so I find when the client is there, they, they're just able to go. They're just ready and able to go. They, they want to be friends, maybe, which of course we don't do because that's, you know, professionally not ethical for us to do. It wouldn't be healthy and for the best, um, best for the client to retain a friendship. That would be very confusing. So that's not okay. But their, their connection now is in the friend zone versus the therapist client zone, because they've just been able to resolve what they needed to resolve at that period of time in their life. I agree. It's a weird word, but that is technically what it's called termination. I always think of the terminator, but then I think of like, um, you know, Linda Hamilton and it makes me want to throw on a tank top and do pull-ups. You know, like, <laughs> this is how amazing you are. You got this. Um, yeah. but, but all relationships come to an end. And I guess, I guess I'll add this. It's an opportunity to practice a healthy departure and a healthy oh, moving on and open up room for other new relationships. Cause for some people, they haven't experienced that, you know, a healthy, you mm -hmm. know, a healthy, you're amazing, you're awesome, fly free, have, an, have a fabulous life, keep doing your thing, you know, mm -hmm. that's an important piece of it. That's such a good point too. It's, it's kind of like another step to the journey, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I think when we were talking about this, podcast earlier too, we talked about how some clients might thrive in chaos. And you mentioned earlier too, you said something like, I've never not experienced trauma or things like that. Um, so can you talk a little bit about kind of after this period of chaos, how some clients may feel? Uh, definitely. I mean, I think I heard this from a lot of clients last year when COVID was really kicking off and everybody's like, I'm good. Like I know this one, <laughs> you know, um, I think it's the kind of thing where if someone's, let's say for example, someone's, I call it trauma blocking. Someone's trauma blocking of choice is go, go, go busy, 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 never, never stop, blah, blah, blah. And then everything comes to a standstill. And it's like the Warner, I think it was Warner brothers cartoon with the coyote, Wiley coyote. Right. And he's running off the cliff and he's like, you know, you know <laughs> we can't do that. We can't do that. So it almost feels like that, even though what someone might actually be experiencing is contentment or peace, mm -hmm. you know, if it's not a Calm. wild, you know, oscillation of emotions, like I'm not like, Oh my gosh, this is the best night of my life. And I'm not like, Oh, I'm so irritated. Or I'm so upset. Just being in the middle is like, uh, wait, 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 what's going on? What's going on? And life is really in the middle. You know, it's not in those extremes. We, most of life is taking place in a very neutral place. You know, not everything is a 10 or a zero. Most of the time it's somewhere in between. And so I think for clients who are accustomed to being on an extreme, especially if it feels like an unhealthy one, I call it the misery, you know, you're more comfortable with the misery, you know, and it takes some time again, that leaning in, like, what is it like to sit with yourself? And I think for a lot of folks who've experienced trauma, especially, you know, um, sexual trauma and a detachment from the body that another layer to it where it's like oh no 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 I don't like to feel here in my body behind my eyeballs and my skin this is freaking me out let's find a way to cope dissociate whatever um and notice that it's coping because it is um mm -hmm. even when sometimes those choices are unhealthy and not sustainable in the long term 
So it's, that's, that's another layer to the work. And I think it's part of the growth, you know, being able to grow into, all right, I can sit with myself. Yeah. And that's huge. You went referenced how like most of life is kind of in that in between. So how do, how can we identify feelings of emotional numbness and feelings of contentment? Yeah, that's really good. Well, I think when someone's numb, there is an absence of feeling. And that's the difference. Contentment has a sort of warm calm to it. It has it has a state to it, to it. Whereas numbs just shut down, just blocked, shut down, robotic, on autopilot, going through doing everything. Yeah, that's Spock, right? Yeah. Or I would say it's like, um, you know, contentment versus non-contentment is like birds are chirping and numb is like white noise. You know what I mean? Like the difference of of like being plugged into your present. I always say behind our eyeballs, because I mean, like, are you looking at me behind your eyeballs? Are you totally plugged into this moment? And I think that also I'm using this like you know, hearing example for those that can hear, you know, but the difference between like birds chirping and just Mm -hmm. checking out. It sounds like like being present and mindful in the moment versus yeah, this checking out that you were mentioning. Anyway, I just had a question about that. So I appreciate that. Um, So we talked a little bit about tools that some therapists can teach survivors that foster growth after trauma or specific therapeutic approaches. And we talked about strengths-based. What about kind of like this, like other tools like gratitude or reframing or resilience, things like that, that that, uh, therapists can help with? I'm just gonna hop in real quick and say, this is only applicable when it's applicable because there are many clients that you're not, I may never get there with some of my clients because that I'm not part of that piece of their journey. Um, it would be wildly inappropriate to take someone in a very emergent crisis stage or, you know, even a numbing stage and say, you know, let's talk about reframing that. Because people do, you know, like Helen, I hear from clients who've had other unhelpful experiences. So it's all about meeting people where they are. I think that's really, really an important thing to lay down mm-hmm. um, in terms of post-traumatic growth. Nobody wants to come in at the beginning of their journey and hear about how amazing they're going to feel at the end. And some people are looking for hope or just like, is there like a light at the end of this, you know, cave? Are we in a cave or are we in a tunnel? What is happening? I don't even know. To what you just said though, Brandy, I think that's really good. And so sometimes, you know, something like CBT can be very oriented towards that. And that's why it's a timing thing in trauma, because it would be incredibly invalidating to expect someone who's talking about being raped to reframe it, to be okay. It would be like saying, let's make this okay. That's, that's what, that's what you're saying there. So a lot of the skills that I use will be in regulating, regulating affect. So I'll, 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 I do, um, I do a lot of visual interventions. I like somatic work too, but one of the things I do is after I've gone through my chart, (laughs) I go through this piece of how, uh, when the amygdala is activated, and sets up that 911 alarm that there's a crisis going on in the present, even when there isn't, right? That it's a trauma response happening right there. Limbic system hijacks the frontal cortex. Frontal cortex is offline, so you can't think or reason one's way to regulate, right? So one of the things I do is I'll have my clients 
create a character for the amygdala. And so when I've done it for myself, the character I have is the, the mad red guy from inside out. And so what I'll do when I'm in that, that heightened fight, flight, freeze, whatever response, trauma response is going on, you know, I'll have the clients create a character. For me, it's this, this red, angry red guy who's like freaking the F out, right? Freaking out, because that's really what's happening in the limbic system. And then to bring my frontal cortex back online and I'll have the clients again, create their own character for that. I'll use this calming blue light that will come in, surround the angry red guy and written in it is it's a false alarm. It's a false alarm. So I have had clients, uh, I've had one client who uh, was a veteran and he created, you know, his, his, his amygdala visual was um, just a soldier, like machine gunning, like going off like this with a machine gun. And then to calm the frontal cortex component was, um, I can't remember the actual military personnel who did it, the rank, but they came in, sir, yes, sir, false alarm, sir. I have new information, sir. Here is my brief, sir. And so you'll visualize that and it calms and it helps enough of the frontal cortex to get online to be like, okay, it is a false alarm. So that's one of the techniques I use. Another one is something called the four elements to help calm. You use that too, Brandy, and that's, that's an EMDR technique to resource, to bring somebody in the present, right in the present. And so it's a guided uh, activity really where you're grounding in the present, you're noticing things, then you're breathing to a certain cadence, and then you're creating saliva, and then you're um, creating, going to a safe place, and then you're installing it in slow taps. And it just, again, helps, helps the client to ground and deescalate. I love that. I love that the example that you gave, gave someone the ability to make the character that works for them specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so love the individuality of it too. Sounds like Brandy, you use also that the four elements piece too. Yeah. I mean, I did a, a training where I learned it. I think I was in one, I don't know if we were in the same one, Helen, but I did it with our team actually in a staff meeting once. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I remember I was there. It was so yeah. Cool. It's a it's just a quick reorienting, but I think it's super relaxing and um, a little surprising because I think most of and part of the reason I like it, most of the other ones I used didn't include the saliva, saliva, like the lemon, the lemon or a sour candy. I love that. Love Me that. Too. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because from what I understand, um, when you're calm, you produce more saliva or something like that. So that helps calm you down. Is that right? Yes. Yes, when you're anxious, you get a dry mouth. And so, and, and you really, it just is, you're just really focusing when you're thinking about biting into a lemon, you're just really focused in the present, body oriented right there. It's really good. Now I'm like, got a ton of saliva in my mouth. I know. Thinking <laughs> it too, actually. <laughs> um, so these skills that you were talking about, you said earlier that we should be teaching these things like early on. So what can we do like as a society, maybe if you want to do bigger picture um, or maybe just like one-on-one with people in our lives to foster these kinds of, you know, resilience that we can all teach each other? Well, you know, wouldn't it be great 
if this was part of our education system. If we had um, breathing and being centered and meditation and yoga and social awareness, all starting in pre-K and that it was just built into the curriculum the whole way through. That would be phenomenal. It just, you know, understanding what trauma is and how the brain reacts and normalizing any of those responses and talking about it like a regular conversation, like we would talk about potty training or having a cold. Normalizing human experiences and learning how to, um, I don't know how to say cope, it. Right, to manage, to cope and yeah. And, and I would add kind of connected to this topic is stop over prescribing trauma, especially when you're not a professional. Um, so many clients come in and they have a litany of diagnoses that they identify with. And all it takes is a few questions to figure out that, oh, it's what my mom told me or, oh, you know, it was what somebody said that I met with like three times in fifth grade. And it's like, OK, cool. Um, so, you know, understanding that some of the responses to trauma, most, not some, all responses to trauma are normal, Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and again, not to say that post-traumatic stress disorder doesn't happen for folks and not to minimize for the people that, you know, suffer from that, you know, it, it's hard and it's, it's a lot of work to lean into and live a full life and recover from those symptoms, but it's possible. And when someone's been through a traumatic experience, it's, probably not helpful to say, oh my gosh, this happened to you. You need help. Who do you need to go to? Are you okay? What's the matter? You know, you're a fragile egg now. We can't say anything or say, talk about anything fun ever. You know, they, people around the person who's been through it start treating them like they're not a person anymore. Like they're the trauma. Mm -hmm. So it's no wonder mm -hmm. that people come in and over-identify with the trauma. Yes. I love that. Yeah. Um, again, being a supporter to someone is super important um, and learning kind of listening to this podcast, you're learning more about it. So that's great, but also learning how to react responsibly and yeah, and, and not putting identities on people and defining their experiences and their, their identity themselves is super important. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about these ripple effects that healing from trauma can have. So what are those ripple effects? What can they look like? Simone Biles, look at that. That's a media ripple effect right there. Yes, yes, I love her. I love her, I'm so proud of her. You know, I, I feel proud of her. I feel like she's the child of the nation who is leading everyone through post-traumatic growth and the ripple effects of that nationally and internationally. Why she anyway had to had to jump in on that. No, I love that. I love the um that she's such a great role model in that aspect. Like mm -hmm. she's this Olympian, sure, but like she's also this person who is being a great role model of advocating for yourself and what works for you and, and defining what that is. And being human being a human. I would also add, you know, just the way clients start to interact with people close with them. Um, sometimes they feel like they become better partners, better friends, better coworkers, um, and, you know, better parents. I, I think it's so cool. We have a group called Parenting as a Survivor that's specific to folks who've experienced childhood sexual abuse personally, and they're now parenting themselves um, because, yeah. oh man, it's just so cool. And that was a direct client request. We had clients who were like, hey, are other 
people around it who are in the similar situation that want to talk about it because I want to make sure that I'm doing this right, that my child has, you know, the best chance and, oh, it's just so neat. So that's why I think it's such a powerful choice and it is a choice to do the healing. It is a choice. Some people are like, no, I don't have a choice. Yeah, you do. Nobody who comes to therapy with us um, is mandated. You know, everybody's making the choice to lean into that discomfort and and potential for growth so that they feel like they have um, better relationships in their lives. So I think that's a really cool thing to hear clients talk about. I get really pumped when I get an email like months or years later, like, hey, Brandy, just want you to know I got married and this is where I'm at now. I'm like, ah, squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. Yeah. Um, so that's super awesome. And even little interactions, because remember the little wins all add up to big wins. So sometimes we're kinder to people that we don't know when we're passing by them in a store or, you know, someone in the street, like all those things matter. So mm -hmm. that's my personal belief that, you know, it's all interconnected. Yes, the major relationships in our lives seem to be a really prominent um, place where I hear about healing and that ripple effect. And I wouldn't underestimate that the way we show up with people who are distantly acquainted for us really matters too. I think that's brilliant. That makes so much sense, Brandy. And it makes me think about driving on the road you know, and driving with courtesy and, and driving not out of anger or fear because of the work that's been done. It has a massive ripple effect being in a state of non-judgment because in a state of non-judgment on ourselves internally, all that internal systemic work that's been done is now being externalized. So that loving kindness, accepting appreciation inside is now being externalized. Brilliant. For sure. And actually you bringing that up reminded me, I don't know, you know, how, um, where the research is exactly, but I know there's research that's looking into and looking to support some of the efficacy of mindfulness-based practices mm -hmm. in terms of fostering post-traumatic growth. Because some of those tenants, I heard it, I heard it in the example you were describing, um, but some of the components of mindfulness also help folks to be able to be in a place where they're able to move towards post-traumatic growth. That non-judgment, paying attention on purpose, all of that yeah. like detachment from feeling overwhelmed. Yeah, I'm hearing so much um, in this and it's so hopeful, I feel like. And that's why I wanted to ask this question at the end, <laughs> because I feel like there's this feeling of healing. A person kind of has this real ripple effect of healing each other, healing communally, and then having these spaces for people to be vulnerable, to be human and to have normal responses. And there's no shame in it. Um, and it could be anywhere from being kind to a fellow stranger on the road or in the store to sharing your story on a public platform if that's what works for you and then other survivors hearing it um, to volunteering, to creating support groups and bringing that up to your therapist um, to getting married. Um, I love all of this. And also Brandy, you talked about, you know, I wanna acknowledge you saying choosing to grow. I think that that's the entire point to this episode, right, is saying you have this empowerment to choose to grow after this thing um, or whatever that looks like to you. So absolutely. I love that you really wanted to have this podcast. Um, and I think that's a great place to sign off. But if there's anything else that you would like to say to survivors out there or to uh, fellow healers out there as well before we sign off, or if there's anything else that we didn't cover that you wanted to say. I wanted to give you all the floor. 
I just would want to say that I have mad respect for survivors and anybody who's on a healing journey because it's not easy, but it's so worth it. And I have an equal amount of respect and gratitude for the healers that are supporting those because I've been on both sides. And so I know how important both sides are. So gratitude for the healers and respect for those who are healing. Yeah. And I would add, you know, I guess this is for everybody. You're more powerful than you think. Um, I really, really do believe you and believe in you. And I think those things are very important. I don't think any of us would sign up for this work without that inherent belief. Um, so that's what I'll say. You're more powerful than you think. I love it. Thank you so, so much. And thank you to the listener for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. The VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear and you are not alone. And thank you so, so much, Brandy and Helen, for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for, for um, giving the space for this conversation. It's so exciting to me to think about the next, you know, the next phase of all this, that growth piece. So thank you, Emily. Yeah, really. And thanks, Helen. Thanks, Helen, for joining. Brandy, you're welcome. <laughs> Happy Bears for everyone. Ha, ha, ha.